So I'm Doug, one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you. And um, I don't know if you saw it. I think it was in the Des Moines Register, but somehow they did a survey of the fears that Iowans have, the most common Iowan fears. And the way they did that from September 2016 till September 2017, they used Google searches, I, actually for every state. And when people would say things like, why am I so afraid of fill in the blank, they just somehow calculated all that. And so you can look for all 50 states, what is everybody afraid of? But in Iowa, our top three fears apparently are, number three is tripophobia. Does anybody know what that is? That's the fear of holes. Don't, I can't connect with that one. If you can, I don't mean to be offensive, but fear of holes is number three. Number two was xenophobia. That's the fear of the unknown. Isn't that basically all fear is kind of that? But And don't confuse xenophobia with xenophobia. That's the fear of warrior princesses. So don't, don't. <laughs> and then number one was claustrophobia, fear of small spaces. So more, kind of more, my, number six was fear of spiders. And that was relevant. We did a staff retreat this week and I went on a prayer walk with some guys somewhere on that walk. I must have picked up a spider. So I get in my car to drive home from that, and I look at my shoulder, and there's a spider, like right there. So I have that fear of spiders right there on that one. So um, number 13, apparently, for Iowans is fear of cats. I don't understand that. I could see hatred of cats being number one, but not like <laughs> fear of cats anywhere in there. So um, what you're going to see this morning is an amazing passage. We're going through the Gospel of Mark, and you're going to see three stories of Jesus just putting his power and his authority on display. And so the, the theme of fear just kind of rides through this whole passage. And so what we've seen so far in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus is presenting himself as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And so he's come in authority and power. So his teaching is so authoritative. He's drawing big crowds. He's been healing people. He's been casting out demons. Uh, but at the same time, he's also rising up. He's, he's mounting some opposition against him. And that's kind of the whole story of the Gospel of Mark, is Jesus is being presented as the authoritative Son of God, but he's also being rejected. And eventually, this Gospel narrative will end with him being crucified on a cross. And so, so far in the first four chapters, we've seen Jesus' popularity is growing. In chapter 3, we saw people are coming from just vast regions to come and hear him. And so in that week, we talked about how there were fans you know, people were just there to see a show, kind of curious about Jesus. There were foes. There were already people that wanted to destroy Jesus. But what Jesus was really looking for is followers. And so last week in chapter 4, we saw the parable of the sowers, where Jesus told four stories about what the kingdom is like. And his kingdom is going to come in an unexpected way. He's trying to prepare his people for that. He told a story of a mustard seed, that how small it is. But yet when that, when that mustard seed is planted, in good soil, it grows to be the largest of the garden plants. And so Jesus is saying, my kingdom is like that. There are times where it's going to seem small, where it's going to seem insignificant, where it seems like it's not working. But out of all of this, Jesus is looking for is good soil, good hearts that will receive his message. And then he wants to do astonishing things through the people who simply receive and accept and trust his message. So that's where we've been. And when you get to the end of that section, you get the impression, it's around verse 33, that the disciples had about as much as they could take. Like they're getting a little restless. Story, 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 story. It's like, okay, I think this is blowing us away. It's over our heads. And so Jesus says, okay, let me keep teaching you, but now I'm going to teach you on a boat ride. 
We're going to go on a boat ride. If Jesus ever comes back and invites you on a boat ride, don't expect that to be an easy kind of cruise. Like, there's so, every time Jesus got in a boat with his followers, something pretty amazing happened. So he's going to continue teaching them about who he is and about the kind of heart that he's looking for. But now it's not going to be through parables. It's going to be through, again, four very interesting stories. So let me pray for us before we start, then we'll dive in uh, to this this great section of scripture. And why don't you pray first? Let me just give you a chance to just calm down. We all came with all kinds of weeks this week and took different things to get us here this morning. Could you just ask Jesus to speak to you, that he would help just kind of calm down your heart, remove distractions so you can hear from him this morning? Just ask him to do that. And then if you could ask that I would be clear this morning, that I would speak his words very clearly, that he would teach us. He would be our teacher today. Jesus, thanks for this privilege we have of getting a glimpse of who you are today. So help us respond as we should, as we learn about you. In your great name we pray. Amen. And so like John mentioned earlier, we're going to break this section up where I'm going to teach some and then just back off and give you a chance to respond and pray. So I know some of you guys are live streaming at home today. Same deal, just track with us, we'll teach, and then you'll have a chance to pray even at home. And so we love having you guys be a part of what we're doing. All right, so let's go to Mark chapter 4, verse 35. That's where this is going to start. And in these stories, you're going to see the power, the purpose, and the priorities of Jesus. Okay, so here's the, the power of Jesus. Mark 4, verse 35. It says, on that day... When evening had come, he said to them, let's go to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in a boat, just as he was. Okay, so this is a direct link to what we just saw last week. He has just finished preaching and speaking to this great crowd. Remember, the crowds were so big, he had to push out in a boat on the edge of the Sea of Galilee so that they wouldn't crush him, they wouldn't push against him. So it's right at the end of that teaching, it says they took him just as he was. They didn't have time to go home and change and get ready for this trip. They just went. Okay, they just got in the boat and they went to the other side. And there were other boats with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So a couple things here. They get in a boat, they go across. They're on the Sea of Galilee. Now, I've had the privilege of going to Israel. And the Sea of Galilee, I don't know, when you read it in the Scriptures, you're just ready to see this amazingly vast sea. And actually, it's pretty small. It's seven miles by 13 miles. And it really sits like in a, it's like a saucer. It sits in a valley with kind of hills all around it. And so because of the topography and because of different um, elements of where it lies, Storms can come up quickly in this area, and they can be very fierce with very little notice or warning. And so we know this is a big storm because seven of Jesus' 12 disciples are fishermen. They grew up on the sea. They're used to storms. They're used to waves. They don't get freaked out of those kind of things. But this one was big. It was so big, their boat is already filling up with water. And so, so they're already freaking out, and they, they cry out to Jesus, you know, don't you care that we're drowning? Jesus is asleep in the middle of all this. In the stern, in case you don't know your boat parts, that's the front of the boat, right? And so he's asleep, and they're all freaking out, and they're drowning. They think they're drowning, and they just say, Jesus, don't you care 
that we're perishing. Can I just say there's already something we need to catch in what's going on. Just in their statement to Jesus, there's, there's just, it's just clear they don't know who he is. First, they called him teacher. Okay, so I think there's a little condescension in that. Hey, teacher, you know, like, okay, you used to be a carpenter, now you're a teacher. Certainly you can't, you're not a fisherman. Like, you don't know the seas. There's certainly nothing you can do to save us here because you're, you're just kind of a teacher. So, hey, teacher, so they doubted his power. Then they also doubted his, his concern. Don't you care that we're drowning? Okay, so in the middle of the storm, you see their hearts. You see what they really think about Jesus. And so Jesus awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So Jesus laid down in, a, in his humanity. He was tired. He was teaching all day. But he rose up from that sleep as, as God. And he spoke. He rebuked the wind and the waves. He just, it, the, the wording in uh, the original language there is like he said, be quiet and stay quiet. Like just two verb tenses. Be quiet, stay quiet. Just like you would talk to maybe a dog, right? Couldn't say that to a cat. Cats don't understand you. But like a dog, you command a good dog and it's done. So Jesus commanded the wind and the waves just spoke to them and they instantly obeyed. And just so we know, this wasn't like just a chance calm in the storm that happened to coincide with Jesus' words. It wasn't just the winds that stopped, but the waves stopped too. As a, as a dad, I've taken my kids to many wave pools. You know, like when they stop, you're still like out there doing a lot of this in a wave pool. The waves don't stop instantly. But when Jesus commanded them to stop, to be quiet and stay quiet, just instantly everything was calm. And so, and he said to them, why are you still, why were you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Let's talk about storms for a little bit. I think, uh, again, if Jesus ever invites you in a boat, you know, strap it on. You got something coming your way. Um, but let me say about storms. You're in one of three places with storms. You are either about to step into one and you don't know it, um, or you're either in one or you're either just coming out of one. Like somehow there's a misconception that if you follow Jesus, things will just be smooth sailing all the way through. And now there's certainly times that we can bring storms into our lives by doing dumb things like by ignoring God and not doing what God asks us to do, there's consequences to our foolishness. So we can bring on our own storms like Jonah did, if you know that story in the Old Testament. Um, but there's times, too, that Jesus is in the boat with you, that you're doing exactly what Jesus is calling you to do. You're, you're not straying from him. He's with you. He said, we're going to go to the other side of the lake. You're in the boat with him, and a storm comes. So storm, if you're not in a storm now, cheer up. There's one coming your way, okay? So there's that. But why would Jesus do that? Why would he allow his people to go through a storm? And I think what we see here is that he's using this storm to let his people really see who he is. I mean, it's clear right now, you know, they call him teacher, not Lord. Uh, don't you care? So they're doubting his power and they're doubting his concern. And um, you, you got to be honest, like you got to look at how, I don't know what the last storm you went through was, but how did you respond? Like what came out of your heart? I like the expression that we're like a cup filled with water. And when you bump into that cup, whatever's in that cup's going to spill out. The same is true about our hearts. Like whatever's in our hearts comes out when we get bumped. And so when the last storm came in your life and bumped you, what came out is a good reflection of what's, what's in your heart. 
And so um, for these guys, Jesus said, do you still have no faith? You still don't know who I am, do you? He didn't say you just have little faith or small faith. He says, you have no faith. You don't really know who I am. And so again, just look back. What's, what, what came out the last storm you were in? Or what's sad is even what can come out of our hearts and we're really not in a storm. Like we're not even in, we're maybe in an interruption. Maybe we're in a breeze. We're not even in a, in a storm and what's coming out of our hearts. And so what Jesus is calling us to is a deeper understanding of who he is. And I love how this little section ends in verse 41. It says that they were filled with great fear and they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So Mark makes it really clear. They were really afraid in the storm, but when the storm ended, they were even more afraid of Jesus. Like uh, Psalm 89 is an example. Like in that day, the, the saying was, no one can control the seas. The seas are just raging and wild, and no one can contain the seas except God. And so it was one thing to be scared by the seas that they knew, yeah, the seas are powerful. But now this man in their boat just stood up and said, be quiet, stay quiet, and the seas are calm. Now that fear has shifted from storms to like, who, who is this? There was an awe. There was an awe of Jesus. And it's interesting. They saw, I mean, they'd heard parables earlier in the day about the sower sowing seed and whoever receives the seed, God will do powerful things. Now, firsthand, they got to see what happens when this one uses his voice. Look what happens. Look how the seas calmed and the storm ceased. And so I'm going to give you a chance to pray and respond to this right now because I just want to give you a chance to, to respond because it could be that right now you're in a storm and to pause right now and pray and remember who's in the boat with you, to remember his power. Instead of us freaking out, we can trust him um, to give you a chance to do that. Or maybe you're not in a storm right now, but man, somebody really close to you is. So it's almost just like you're in that storm because you care so much. So let's pray. Just gonna, I'm going to shut up and just kind of give you a chance to pray just to give Jesus a storm that's in your life right now. Or another thing you could do here is we just saw the power of Jesus. And maybe you look at your life and you've been a little flippant with, with his word. Like his word is powerful. And when he speaks, all of creation does what he says, except for us, right? And so maybe this is a chance to kind of confess that, that Jesus, I've just been reminded that your word is powerful and I've been really flippant with your word and I've been doing my thing and not yours. So however you need to pray, I just want to give you a chance to respond. Either just pray for a storm or pray for your heart to respond to his authoritative word. Go ahead and pray. So the story continues. We go to Mark chapter 5, verse 1 now, if you want to turn there. And again, the disciples were afraid. Who is this that has this power over the sea and the storm? And so there's fear of Jesus. And they land now. They're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They're landing in an area that's called the Gerasenes. And from what we understand, that was mainly a Gentile area where maybe they had not heard much about Jesus yet. And so verse 2 says that when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, 
And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. So Jesus steps out of the boat and immediately there's a showdown. This, this man, as we're going to find out later, had as many as 6,000 demons in him. There's an immediate showdown. And so uh, we see a man who somewhere in his life opened himself up to a lie of the enemy. We have an enemy. Uh, Satan is alive and well for now. And he loves to lie to us that God isn't good, that you can do whatever you want, that if you do whatever you want, there are no consequences, uh, and that God is actually holding out on you. If you obey God and follow God, he's going to rob your life. He's going to rob your joy. Those are the lies that somewhere in this man's past he began to believe. He was looking for peace. He was looking to be fulfilled. He was looking to be satisfied. But he opened himself uh, to the wrong side. He opened himself up to the enemy. And so eventually what happened is that this man got to the place where he was so filled with and controlled by evil that now he was utterly defiled. He, was, he had lost all dignity. He is living alone. He, nobody wants to be around him. Everybody's freaked out by him. Um, they try to shackle him with chains. He broke free from those. Um, he's defiled. He's out of his mind. And no one, no one wants to be around this guy except Jesus, because Jesus took a boat ride through a storm and all the way across the Sea of Galilee because he had a divine appointment with this man. So if you want to ask, well, what's Jesus going to do with his power? Can we trust him? Is he, should we be terrified of him? We see Jesus is willing to take a trip all the way across to meet with a man that no one else wanted to meet with. You know, Jesus warns us in John 10.10, 10, he says, that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But I came that you might have life, and life to the full. If you want a picture of what Satan's goal for you would be, read Mark 5, 1-20, and read what was happening to this man. Again, we are tempted every day with those same lies that this man believed. And so we are tempted to stray away from God. And the enemy's desire would be to kill you, to destroy you you, to isolate you from God and others, and eventually to kill you. I mean, you saw the picture of this man is even just crushing himself with rocks. He's in self-destructive mode. And yet Jesus steps into this situation, um, and he was willing to enter into this guy's defilement, into the disgusting place this man was, willing to step into this evil place and bring restoration. So we're not going to have time, but an interesting conversation happens. There's a big showdown, but this isn't one with swords and, you know, a big fight. And, you know, Jesus is getting choked. And is he going to survive? Like, instantly Jesus is in charge. I mean, the man calms even with six, up to 6,000 demons in him, and he falls before Jesus. You can see that throughout these stories. People are just falling before Jesus. There's no doubt who's in charge. And there's an interesting conversation that we could spend hours and look at what all the theologians say, but basically there's a negotiation that goes on. 
the demons speaking from this man are just pleading with Jesus, don't send us out of the region. Don't send us into the abyss. The abyss, they think, and I think, is a reference to where Satan and his angels will one day dwell for all of eternity, a place of persecution and you know, judgment and a good place for those guys to go, right? We want them there forever. But they're saying, don't send us there. There's even an interesting phrase where they say, don't send us out of the region. And that region's going to come up again, and we'll highlight it there. But I think these guys, these demons, felt like they had such a foothold on this area. And you can see more of that just in a little bit. That they, they had influenced so many people to be so uh, disconnected from God, so not looking for the Messiah, that they liked the region they were in. So they were going back and forth. And what was clear was Jesus was going to restore this man. That was not an option. They were getting out of this man's life. The plea deals was all about, well, where can we go? And so I don't understand why, but those demons went into a herd of 2,000 pigs. And those pigs, and I don't know if I've never been a pig before, but I imagine if I was a pig suddenly indwelled by demons, I would go nuts. And that's exactly what happened. These pigs went nuts, and they went, and they dove into the Sea of Galilee, and they all drowned. And there's all kinds of pig ponds you could go to now. You could say they took a swine dive. You could say it was now the Bay of Pigs. Like, you could go on and on with some of those, but I won't do that to you. We'll stop there with those two. Um, but I think what you see from that clearly, too, is that what is Satan's intent? It is to destroy God's creation. And the peak of God's creation, the only part of God's creation that's created in his image is you and me. And so Satan knows he can't defeat God, but the next best place, if he wants to hurt God, is to get at one of us and to get us to believe his lies so he can take us to that point of destruction and to kill us. And so we see Jesus stepping into this, and he, again, frees this guy from the demons. They leave him, they go to the pigs, and then this man is fully restored. He's fully just, he gets his capabilities back. He puts clothes on. He's, he's like, he's restored, all right? What's Jesus going to do with his power? Should we be afraid of him? No, Jesus has a purpose with his power. It's to step into our darkest places, the places where we have believed lies, the places that cause us to cry out in pain overnight and day. He's willing to step into that dark place and fully restore us. I used the phrase a couple weeks ago of being a hellbreaker. Jesus was a hellbreaker. Wherever he went, hell and Jesus could not occupy the same place at the same time. Wherever he went, hell broke apart. Jesus, what are you going to do with your power? I'm willing to step into the darkest places and bring restoration because my power is greater than the power of the enemy. And so verse 15, I can imagine the pig herders, that can't be that great a job. And it can't be the most exciting job. But when something like this happens, and you just freak out, right? So they all run back into the village. They tell the villagers what happened. And so verse 15, we see the villagers coming back out. It says, they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Like, I think they'd be blown away about the pigs and about all this. What completely blew them away is this guy was totally changed. Totally changed. And those who had seen it described to them what happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. There's that word again. Depart from our region. I, you know, I'll have to admit, it's easy to read the Bible story sometimes and insert yourself into it and go, I wouldn't have done that. Like, if I was one of those villagers and I saw what Jesus did with that man, I'd be next in line. Like, if you could do that to him, 
Like, I wasn't that bad, but I'm bad. Like, could you, whatever you did to him, do to me. Do a makeover on Doug, right here, front line. Everybody else can fight for next. But I need you, Jesus. Whatever you did there, do it again. And so they did not. There was, again, I think a darkness over this region. There was a contentment with where they were, that they were afraid of this, this Jesus who totally transformed this man's life. And so they were afraid, and they begged Jesus to leave. All right? And so... As Jesus is turning to go, look at this stark contrast. Verse 18 is that as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Complete opposite begging. Begging to go, now begging to go with him. I don't know if you remember that phrase, I want to be with you. In Mark 3, when it said Jesus was calling disciples to himself, his purpose was that they would be with him. I think this man is just saying, I want to would you disciple me? Could I just follow you? Could I just learn more about you? That's a great request. So he wants to be with him. But Jesus did not permit him. But Jesus said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. The Decapolis is a 10-city region just right on this other side of the Sea of Galilee. And I'll give you a little spoiler spoiler alert. In chapter 6, at the end of chapter 6, you're going to see Jesus step back into this region. Remember, a region that had been dark, and I think demon kind of controlled in some ways. When Jesus goes back in Mark chapter 6, it's a completely different response. Like the crowds are out and ready to see Jesus. They weren't now, but they are later. And you got to ask, why? What, what's the difference? And the difference is this man, this changed man, went and just started telling a story. Just started telling about this one that has amazing power, came all the way across the Sea of Galilee just to meet with me and to take me from my darkest place and to restore me. And now I just can't help. I just can't shut up. I just, just keep telling you about what he's done for me. And then God used this one. Again, remember, don't, don't separate this chapter from chapter 4. Jesus is looking for followers. And what does a follower look like? He's looking for someone who will trust his word, receive his word, and then be ready to go and just start sowing the seed. Like, this is what I've learned about Jesus. This man, in the most wretched of all conditions, meets Jesus, is restored, and then begins telling a story. And Jesus uses him to change a whole region. So let's do this. I want to give you a chance to pray again. And this time, let's pray in this, in this way. Um, again, one of two ways here. Number one is, we saw the storms that can be on the outside of our lives. Guys, there's storms on the inside in, in some people's lives here this morning. There are ways that you have opened yourself up to sin, that there are, there are maybe many of us this morning battling a connection with sin or an addiction to sin that we just were embarrassed about. It brings shame, and it brings just night and day just crying out. Can you just see in a fresh way this morning that Jesus has power to step into those places and to bring restoration? He's not keeping you at arm's length. He's ready to dive in. Could you, in a fresh way, invite Jesus into that storm in your life? And again, maybe you're close to someone, and again, maybe it's a storm in someone else's life, and it's as if it's in yours because you love them so much, but could you pray for that? And then the other thing you could pray for now, too, is just maybe you've had a story of that, of Jesus meeting you and restoring you um, through some things. Who needs to know that story? Who 
who now could Jesus send you to to go tell that story? So let's, again, let me give you a couple minutes here to pray and respond, inviting Jesus and his power to come and restore a storm that's raging on the inside. We're asking Jesus to send you to share your story of being set free. Jesus, how comforting it is to see how you use your power. That you, in spite of you being the Lord of all creation, you are willing to take a boat ride just to meet one man in the darkest of places. And you can do that with whatever is the darkest place in this room this morning. You are a hellbreaker. Wherever you stand, Satan and his power just falls at your feet. And so in a fresh way this morning, Jesus, would you bring healing and hell-breaking into lives throughout this room? And then would you send us to be your witnesses, to just talk about how awesome your power is, that we don't look down on people struggling, we don't look down on people in sin, but we speak as a fellow sinner who has found release and relief and restoration in the gospel. Just use us, Jesus, to point people to you. Amen. Isn't Jesus awesome? That's only two. We got one more story here. Jesus is astonishing. And again, remember he was telling them stories in chapter four. They had enough of the stories. Now they're ready to see him in action. And they've seen two amazing things. Now here's the third thing they're going to see. Remember, this is all in about the same day or so. These are all packed together, okay? So if you go to Mark 5, 21, um, you're going to see Jesus' priorities now, that Jesus has an agenda, and it's a lot of times different than ours, but Jesus has a plan. And if we're to be his followers, we have to know his power, we have to know his purpose, we also have to know his priorities. And so 5, 21, this is that when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. So now he's back to kind of where he was where people already know about his ministry, and again, the crowds are there to see him. It says, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing Jesus, he fell at, at Jesus' feet, and he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. Again, same boat trip, goes back. Again, we keep seeing people just falling at Jesus' feet, this time it's Jairus, who's an established, dignified religious leader, had all the credentials, all the esteem, but he is in big need right now. Probably the saddest sentence you could, you could strew together is that my little girl is about ready to die. You sense urgency, desperation, and Jesus is drawn to that. Jesus is drawn to dependence, humility, this man falling at his feet. I think if you ask Jesus, Jesus, do you see faith in Jairus' life? Jesus would say yes. I mean, there's some evidences there of a man who knows who Jesus is and is begging for Jesus to help. That draws Jesus' heart. He loves that kind of response. So they start moving toward Jer Jairus' house. And if you follow the whole Gospel of Mark, it's a fast-paced book. 
right? 44 times the word immediately is in this. And here's urgency. There's a little girl dying. We've got to get there. So, but at the same time, there's crowds around Jesus. It's like if you've ever left Kinnick before and the crowd's moving, but you're not. Like your feet are just kind of, well, I guess I'm going where they're going. That's Jesus trying to fight through crowds to get to this little girl who's dying. There's a sense of urgency. And then all of a sudden, the narrative kind of slows down and Mark starts, starts talking about this woman. A woman has had some medical condition where she's continued to bleed. And so um, she's spent all of her money on physicians trying to heal her and figure out what's going on. And no one can figure it out. And so there's pain, there's discomfort, and there's awkwardness. And then even this, this kind of symptom would cause her to be separated from her people. She would be defiled. She wouldn't be able to worship and so with everybody. So a lot of shame, a lot of disgrace, a lot of frustration. And so she hears that Jesus is coming. And in her head, she says, if I could just touch Jesus, I'll be made well. She had faith in that point. It's been 12 years. She's not cynical so much that she's not willing to give this one who says he's the Messiah a chance. So she fights through the crowd somehow and reaches out and touches him. And she's instantly healed, okay? You think, great, great story. Now let's get to the dying girl, right? But Jesus stops and he just looks around and he goes, hey, who touched me? And his, his disciples are like, uh, Jesus, lots of people are touching you. Like, there's a crowd. Like, let's go, let's go, let's get going. There's a little girl dying, and Jesus won't let it drop. No, I think somebody, I think somebody touched me. And he's looking around, man, this is amazingly awkward. Like, sometimes we just read through the Bible stories and we all pause. And I mean, imagine Jairus, like, mm, let's go. Like, my little girl's dying. Like, okay, I guess we'll look for whoever touched you. You know, the disciples kind of maybe embarrassed and trying to be like his handlers and trying to protect his image. You know, like, Jesus, come on, we got to get going. The woman didn't even want to be found, right? She just wanted a touch-and-go healing. Let me just touch and go and don't make a big deal of this. But Jesus made a big deal of it, and he, he would not drop it um, until he saw her. And so verse 31 says, his disciples said to Jesus, you see the crowd pressing, uh, pressing around you, and yet you say somebody, you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus was relentless because he didn't want her to just do a touch and go and kind of think, Oh, well, he was powerful or boy, that robe he wore sure had special powers. And Jesus wanted her to know face to face that it was her faith. Did you notice he said, made you well? Next. First he said, go in peace. That it's because she trusted him that she can have peace throughout her life and that she will be healed. You know, Jesus, why didn't you heal this woman for the 12 years she'd been crying out and suffering and spending all of her money I think God had a plan for her, not just to be healed by him, but it was worth a 12-year wait for her to see her creator face to face and to hear him affirm her for her faith in him. Because we have no idea of the rest of her story. But very most likely, she ended up believing in Jesus, not just for the healing of her issue, but as her savior. When the message of the gospel started to spread, that's the one who looked in my eye and first said, go in peace, go in peace. So the 12-year wait meant that this woman got to have that one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. 
And Jesus wanted his disciples to know, I know it's urgent that we go see this girl, but it is as urgent for me that this woman knows that her faith in me has made her well and that she can now go in peace. And so there's that story. And again, okay, now let's get going. But then this, <laughs> this sad part comes in where Jairus' friends come to him and say, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your little girl is dead. Again, put yourself in Jairus' shoes. Like, imagine the situation. Let's say you're at the emergency room with one of your kids, and one of your kids is dying. And somebody comes in and says, oh, I've kind of had a little ache in my shoulder for about the last 12 years. And all the doctors go to the little achy shoulder. And you're get, like, there would be a tantrum. There would be chairs flying. Like, there would be, I would be furious as a dad. Like, why did you do that? And why didn't you just rush to my little girl? And Jesus looked at him and said, uh, don't fear, don't fear, only believe. And so Jesus continues to Jairus' house, and when they get there, there's a big crowd. There's a lot of people just wailing and mourning, and there's sadness. And Jesus says, uh, the little girl isn't dead. She's only asleep. And people start laughing. I don't know if you've ever read that story before. You go, How did, why do they start laughing? There was a cultural deal in, in Jesus' day that when there was a, something like a funeral, People were at times even hired, if not volunteered, to go to an event like that and just kind of add to the environment, like in just wailing. And so those people who weren't really there out of grieving for this girl, but maybe either the paid or the volunteer throng to add to the grieving moment, when they heard Jesus say she's just asleep, they just start laughing. And Jesus, who, are you that stupid? Are you that naive that you, you know? But Jesus just took this girl's parents and his followers, and they go into the girl's room. He, he chases everybody else out. And then verse 41 says, Taking her by the hand, Jesus said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years old. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Can I, can I just remind you, I think Jesus already was really impressed with Jairus' faith willing to just chuck aside his credentials, willing to fall before Jesus, knowing that only Jesus could heal his daughter. Like that's an amazing expression of faith. But Jesus says, I see your faith, and I want to take you to an even deeper place. And, and, and so going through the whole experience of his daughter dying and then coming back to life, why didn't Jesus just heal her from a distance? Why didn't he just say, okay, go home, your daughter's fine? Um, he walked Jairus through this journey and Jairus had the privilege of being in the front row of watching Jesus, not just cure a sickness, not just cast out a demon, but to conquer death, to see someone go from death into life. And again, we don't know the rest of Jairus' story or his wife's story or his daughter's story, but imagine what he did with, with those people that had a chance to see death to life. And we know what he did with his disciples that had that privilege of seeing this little girl go from death to life, because eventually they saw their Savior go from death to life. And so what generates a faith that, that refuses to fear, even in the face of sickness and uh, an agenda that isn't ours or a timetable that isn't ours, it's a faith that's deep enough to know that Jesus is in complete control. And that even if Jesus is saying no, and even if the things that I've been praying for for many years are not coming through, I can trust him that he has a plan. And he's going to show himself great. And that I can trust him. And that I do not need to be afraid. Guys, and I know this. I know I've got several in my life. But I know speaking to us this morning that there are many things we could put on a whiteboard today 
about what are things God hasn't answered yet in your life? What are things you've been crying out for, asking him to do, and you have not seen an answer? I think this third story reminds us that Jesus has priorities, that Jesus is in charge, and that Jesus' desire is to deepen our faith, and that we may have to wait, but he's going to do great things, and he's going to reveal his plan to us. And again, I think through these, all these stories, Mark chapter 4, Jesus, what are you looking for? I'm looking for followers who are going to take my gospel and then who are going to move forward with it. And it's going to be hard and there's going to be storms. There's going to be times you don't understand what I'm doing. There's going to be times where my timetable isn't your timetable. Um, but I'm calling you to take this gospel and go to some of the hardest places, to some of the deepest places. And this good soil, the people with the hearts I'm looking for planting this gospel in are those who are going to trust me, who see how great I am and see how good I am. And if that is our heart, if that is the faith we have, then you watch and you see the great things that Jesus is going to do. So to wrap this part up, what I would love to do is to invite you into that, that place and just saying, Jesus, could you help me be that kind of person? Help me see you for who you are. Help me trust you in your power and your timing and your goodness, and, and, and show me who you are. Show me your power. Show me your love. And then if you could even just pray for that as for us as a church, that our identity would not be in what we do uh, or in uh, what we have, where we live, or in our family, but really our identity is we are followers of Jesus Christ. And that in that identity, he's going to call us as his people to go. And, and throughout our city, let people know how great Jesus is, to let people know what Jesus has done for us. But for that to happen effectively, our identity has got to be in Christ, this one who is great, and this one who is deep in his love, and this one who has an agenda. So we don't go out in fear. We don't go out, you know, kind of in timidity. We go out boldly because of the one that we're with. So let me give you a chance to pray again. Just, again, two things. One could be you have been praying for something for many years that has still not come true for you or come through for you? Could you pray just like that woman for 12 years, just like Jairus had to trust that Jesus had a plan and Jesus did and Jesus taught them amazing things. So could you pray, God, continue to give me the courage to keep trusting you when I'm not seeing an answer. And could you pray, God, would we be a people, would we be a church that would identify with you and to move out in, in trust, not in fear, and move out to a city that needs to know how good you are and how great you are. Just pray for those things.